Once upon a time there was a railroad line Don't ask where, brother, don't ask where It was a road to hell Oh, it was hard time It was a world of God And man Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Saturday January 12, 2019. This is the Broadway Live from Broadway Con. My name is James Marino, and today we have Peter Felicia. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His comments, his columns appear at MTI Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Selected, and many of the ple- at many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Also with us is Jenna Tessa Fox. Jenna has been writing about theater for more than 10 years with numerous publications, including Playbill, Broadway World, Time Out, and HowlRound. She's a voting member of Drama Desk Awards and is a contributor to Broadway Radio. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning. Natalie Nowak is the writer of On My Way to a BFA, and her podcast documents... Uh, as a musical theater major, features in interviews with Broadway performers. She is currently a junior at the Hart School of Music, Dance, and Theater at Hartford, Connecticut, and manages our social media account. Good morning, Natalie. Good morning. Michael Portantier is also with us. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at fellowsportphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Jan Simpson is with us. Jan is the Director of Arts and Culture Journalism Program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY and also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Good morning, Jan. Morning. And finally, Matt Tamanini is with us. Matt is a senior editor at Broadway World and is the site advertising manager as well. He also co-hosts Broadway Radios today on Broadway, Monday through Friday, sometimes on Thursday, and Uh, as well as the interview show, Tell Me More. Good morning, Matt. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a shocking thing uh, for you to note here is that um, this is the first time I've met Natalie, the first time many of us have met. This is the first time we've ever actually seen each other while recording. So, uh, you know, sort of a sits probe without an orchestra happening here. So, uh, <laughs> Let's hope we don't screw it up too badly. Yes, exactly. We How, can always fix it in post. We could fix it in post. That's true. <laughs> so we want to thank you all for coming out and visiting us, uh, our first Broadway con. And, uh, and this has been in a, uh, a thing in the making for many years. And we have to thank our listener, Deb Schrager, for making this happen because uh, without her persistence, none of us would be sitting here today uh, doing a live Broadway radio. So let's talk about the upcoming season. Um, the spring season is upon us, and um, we have a lot of really good things to look, look forward to. So, Peter, why don't you start us off with uh, what, what kind of things are you looking forward to in the spring season? Well, certainly Tootsie, because I'm a great admirer of David Yazbek. <clears throat> um, I've worked the Tony Room a lot as a journalist, and um, you know, we're hard-bitten guys, we've seen it all, all that kind of business. But the one time that we ever had any type of reaction was in 2001, when the producers had that juggernaut, and when um, Lily Tomlin said, and the winner for best score is Mel Brooks, the entire room went, oh, 
It's the only time I've ever heard that reaction because everybody thought David Yazbek should win uh, for the full Monty. And it took him a while to win. Of course, he won last year for the band's visit. But he really is, um, I think, one of our finest musical theater writers today. Occasionally he comes up with a rhyme I don't like, but nevertheless, um, he has a funky way of expressing his music, very much in the way Jerry Buck did many years ago uh, with scores like Fiorello and Tenderloin. So, as a result, Tootsie is the musical I'm most looking forward to. The play I think I'm looking most forward to, because I can't imagine what it's going to be like, is Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus. Mm. Now, Titus Andronicus is not one of the Bard's biggest hits, and as a result, you know, I'm surprised that anybody would take any type of look at it. But the fact that Nathan Lane was enticed to be in it was enough for me to say, okay, you know, this must have something there. I do worry about his future because some years ago I loved the musical Something Rotten, which I saw five times, but the thing was, it wasn't as successful as I hoped it would be. It ran a couple of years, but I expected more from it. But the thing was that I think a lot of people were um, nervous about seeing something about Shakespeare because they felt they wouldn't understand it. I wonder if this will be a problem for this Titus Andronicus sequel. Well, and the way I kind of look at this, and just obviously I've only seen the same press reports that you have, but I look at it as kind of the next generation's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, uh, a show that takes, the, uh, takes its origins from a classic Shakespeare show, one more classic than the other probably, uh, but kind of involves it, or evolves it into a comedy of some sort. And I think Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is not obviously as popular as Hamlet is, but I have a feeling that this one is probably going to be a show that we see out in the regions quite a bit because it's, got, it's interesting. The people that cleaned up after Shakespeare's bloodiest play, that's something that I think a lot of regional theaters could probably sell to their subscribers and to ticket buyers wherever they are, whether it's in New York, Atlanta, L.A., Sheboygan, wherever. Well, regional theaters tend to take whatever Broadway offered them that's the year true. before. So. That's true. Jan, what are you looking forward to this uh, spring? Um... Musical-wise, I suppose I'm looking forward to Ain't Too Proud, um, the Temptations musical, um, because I want to see what Des Mackinoff does with this one. He sometimes hits, he sometimes misses. He hit with Jersey Boys, he missed with Summer. Um, but I'm, you know, the Temptations, who doesn't love that music? Uh, Dominique Mariso, um, who's... Um, I was going to say it's an up-and-coming playwright, but she's already here. So um, she's uh, doing the book. She's uh, a native uh, Detroiter, if that's uh, what you call it, and Sergio Trujillo is doing um, the dance. So that's a pretty powerful lineup, so I'm interested in that. And I'm going to go way off-Broadway for the... um, uh, straight play I'm looking forward to, which is the Lehman Trilogy, which is going to be at the Park Avenue Armory. And it's a weird idea, the idea of looking at the Lehman Brothers' um, financial business and how it uh, came up. But it's directed by Sam Mendes, and he's really hitting them out the ballpark. Sure, sure. And it's got terrific actors, three actors doing all the parts, uh, going over 100 years, and they're led by the great Simon Russell Beale, um, who just can do no wrong. Mm. So I'm really looking forward to that. Jenna, what's uh, coming up for you in the spring? Oh, so many things. 
I've got a list of shows I need to catch that I missed uh, either the original productions of or that are just transferring, like Fiddler. I didn't get to see that run. Uh, sorry, the new Yiddish Fiddler. Mm-hmm. Uh, was not able to see that in its original run, so I'm very glad it's transferring for an open end. Uh, the original run of By the Way, Meet Vera Stark, uh, I did not get to see, so I'm very mm-hmm. excited that's coming back. Uh, I didn't get to see Oklahoma at St. Anne's Playhouse. I'm thrilled that's coming to circus. We refer to that as Sexy Oklahoma. Sexy, sexy Oklahoma. Oklahoma, that's right. And sexy. I tried to buy SexyOklahoma.com, but it was taken. Yeah. <laughs> but it was taken and not by the show. Not it by the show. It was something very different. And, oh. and I'm really hoping it could, like... <laughs> I'm really hoping it could run in rep with the uh, cross-gender uh, Oklahoma that was also mm. running. Like, just have the two different productions. You buy your ticket and you take your chances on whichever one you're going to see. I, it's BroadwayRoulette.com. Uh, I love it. That's a real site. That, uh, that exists. Could do that. Uh, I'm looking forward to the Hadestown transfer. I loved mm. it at New York Theater Workshop a couple years ago. Uh, like you, Gary, also looking forward to Intelligence at New York Theater Workshop. That's uh, opening in just a few days. Uh, Merrily at Fiasco Theater. Oh, Merrily, yeah. Yeah, it's I'll, very exciting. Yeah, I'll, be there to, I'll be there tonight. Yeah, oh, tonight. First oh, that's right. You yeah. said, yes. Yeah. With, yeah. with only six people, so we'll see how they do it. But they did a wonderful job with Into the Woods, this oh, Fiasco company, yeah. so that was really great. Yeah. Hate is Tom, really looking forward to because we'll be in comfortable seats. <laughs> at New York Theater Workshop, they jerry-rigged this terrible thing with plywood and what have oh, you. Oh, I loved the, that. Good you for you. <laughs> Enjoy yourself. I'd much rather you have a good time than agree with me, but I'm telling you, these old bones couldn't take those. Oh, no. See, let your youth be a consolation. But I love that set. I love turning the audience into a maze so that when Orpheus and Eurydice are emerging from the underworld, they're walking through. We become the underworld. And they have to walk through us. It's all around us. We are the denizens of the underworld. Man, I thought that dark. was a beautiful set. <laughs> I'm all set with the idea of their walking through. I just would have liked more comfortable there seats. We, oh, there <laughs> you know, whenever I review a show off off Broadway, and it's where usually this is the case, and the seats are terrible, and if I really like the show, I say the audience was on the edge of its folding chairs. <laughs> you know, and stools. Oh, stools, yeah, because I want people to know that if they go, they may not be comfortable, and I was not comfortable at Hades time. You know, Peter, Peter hasn't, uh, he, he spends so much time in the uh, legitimate theater, he hasn't been to movie theaters where you can get recliner seats that are That's very amazing. comfortable now. Yeah. Yes. Last week of the year, we went to movies, and I'm telling you, boy, is it comfortable. I had no idea. <laughs> I, you know, a press reps should set aside uh, pre- yes. press seats and recliners for us, you know? But mostly what I'm looking forward to in spring is the battle between Elaine May and Glenda Jackson and Laura Donnelly for Best Actress in a Play, because that's going to uh, be a bloodbath. And don't feel... Let's get <laughs> Janet McTeer, too. Oh, and, I mean, oh my God. You know, I mean, so it's been Lori a Janet McTeer, yes. And right, really Lori what's McTeer. so interesting about the Waverly Gallery is that so many people said, look... If you want to see Elaine May, you better go the first week because she's not going to be able to do it. She's 86 years old. It's a terribly difficult part. And I think that may be one reason why she wins the Tony. Uh, again, Glenda Jackson, we have to see, is King Lear. And, uh, but, you know, Glenda won last year, and I have a feeling that that's going to uh, impact the voting as well. But r- rewarding Elaine May for the career that she's had, which has had many ups and many downs, uh, I think this is going to be her year. But she's a phenomenal also, that's not the only reason she's Oh, not good. at all. Well, she's <laughs> terrific. I'm just giving one of the reasons. Yeah. <laughs> Michael. Tell us what you're thinking about well, this. Well, as far as Gary, I mean, I don't know much about it, but I kind of suspect that you're not going to need to know 
a lot about, about Titus Andronicus to enjoy it. I think you probably just need to know that it's really bloody and somebody gets their tongue cut out, etc. Uh, so I, I don't alert. think that's yeah. going to be an issue. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, all my sons, if, if only for Annette Benning and Tracy Letts. Uh, yes. We'll see who else ends up being in it. Um, I'm looking forward to Oklahoma because, out of curiosity, because I did not get to see it. it. was the one show in my life where they gave me tickets and then took them back. Uh, they said they didn't. They said, "Oh, we thought we had more, and uh, we don't have enough." And uh, you just, you know, kind of. They didn't actually say you're not important enough, but it was good. <laughs> uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. Um, the Fiddler, absolutely, the Yiddish Fiddler. I hope it breaks the curse of that theater it's going to be in, mm-hmm. uh, now called Stage 42, formerly the Little Schubert. Um, uh, there, a show called The Cake. Have you all heard ah, about this? Yeah, yeah. yeah this uh, this um, I think is going to be really something. It's by a uh, play by Becca Brunstetter, and it's been done se- several productions already. And it's going to be in Manhattan Theater Club in their off Broadway space. And it's about a Christian baker who uh, has a dilemma when she is asked to bake a cake for a, a lesbian couple. So, uh, uh, and Deborah Jo Rupp is in it, who I love, so I, mm, I think that's, that's going to be great. And uh, just quickly, one thing I'm looking forward to, which I don't think will be a spring opening, but hopefully fall, is the new drama Bookshop. Oh, yeah. Yes. So glad you brought that out. God bless Lynn. I think that's one of the best theater stories I've heard in years. Uh, you know, everyone has to start somewhere. And I remember when Tommy Kale, I met him when he was working in that basement in that theater. Oh. And that was long before I met Lynn Manuel Miranda. And I guess I heard the name. It's like, oh, you know, who's that? Uh, and they worked and they worked and, you know, and they workshopped and they did in the Heights and then that happened and then they did Hamilton and, and now they're giving back. And you know what? Just just quickly, I wish something like this could happen to create a theater museum. Mm. I think it needs to be that kind of a that kind of a group behind it. You know, with uh, this one has the uh, the Nederlanders behind it. Mm-hmm. So you need people like that. You need a Nederlander or a Schubert or a Jew Jamson uh, to. Uh, but then. Um, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's really, I don't want to say a crime, but a disappointment, really a disappointment, and quite shocking that there's no theater museum in New York still. And there have been efforts t- towards one that yeah. never came to fruition for one reason or another. So I hope that maybe after the bookstore opens, we can focus on that. Yeah, I mean, when I was in Las Vegas, I went to the Liberace Museum. So if there could be a Liberace Museum, you'd think there could be a Broadway museum. Absolutely. Becca Brunstetter, the uh, playwright of The Cake, I met her when she was just starting up. Well, she had a few plays, but anyway, I met her, and she was the sweetest, loveliest, tiniest, adorable thing. And then I went home and looked at the names of her plays, and there was something like, fuck me with a chainsaw, and <laughs> you would jive, motherfucker. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you know, this, this little cute thing, and, uh, and yet she has quite an imagination, I'll tell you, so the cake should be good. She's also one of the main writers and producers of the TV show This Is Us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that may draw a lot of people sure. to hope sure. um, to yes. see the play. And just last week they announced that she was writing uh, the book for the musical adaptation of The Notebook along with Ang- uh, Ingrid Michaelson, who's writing the score. So You know, I'm curious, you guys... There are so many really good, legitimate playwrights who are now writing the books for musicals. Mm-hmm. Um, is it just the money? I mean, what, why are we seeing this real rise? I won't be surprised if it is just the money. I'm sure it's partly the money. Uh, <laughs> but, 
it, it's great, you know, when they when they wind up doing good jobs with it. And several of them have, I think. Yeah. And some have it. Some have. Some <laughs> yeah. have. Yeah. yeah. So we talked about um, the uh, plays uh, this year. Uh, on all of our podcasts, if you've been listening, we, we keep on talking about how wonderful the season is with plays. Why, why is this trend uh, happening? Does anybody have any theories about uh, why we've been dominated by, by a rash of such a, a number of really good plays, and yet the musicals and revival category seems to be a little bit weaker? I have a theory. I'm not saying that there's any validity to it, but given the fact that uh, musical theater uh, is now more aimed for younger people, uh, for children... Um, that there have been so many musicals that deal with um, kid-friendly topics and, for that matter, so many musicals that um, appeal to the baby boomers because they have aged into theatergoers and have the money to go to the theater and they want to relive their youth, which is why we've seen Donna Summer and Jersey Boys and uh, The Temptations and uh, even The Go-Go Girls. I think uh, that people who don't fit into those dynamics are looking for something to have the live theater experience. Herb Gardner, who wrote A Thousand Clowns, uh, once said to me that no matter what happens, there will always be theater because people just need to be with other people watching something. And while you can say, well, that's true of movies too, we've noticed that in Times Square, which used to have a ton of movie theaters, they aren't there anymore. Not the way they used to be, and yet the Broadway theaters are still there. In fact, there are even more of them than there were when I started um, going to the theater, which was quite some time ago. And so I do think there's an audience who doesn't respond to the teenage type musicals or the um, musicals that really are retro with their scores, and they want to go to the theater, and so I think that's the need it's filling. And if somebody tells me I'm wrong, I won't argue with you for a second. <laughs> well, I'm- I won't necessarily say that's wrong, but I would also suggest cost could be a factor, and the price of putting on a play is significantly lower, uh, especially if it's a limited run. Uh, you can recoup your investment a lot faster, and I wonder if that's just... In the development time as well, plays exactly. hand in hand. Now, I want to ask, Natalie, Peter was talking about the fact that so many musicals that we see nowadays are aimed towards young people, and as you are our resident young person. Hello. Um, hello, young person. Hello, fellow youths. Um, yeah, to, to our token young person. Um, you're someone who is obviously studying musical theater, and so I'm sure at the Hart School they are giving you quite an education in the totality of the theatrical canon. But as you look at what's the shows that are coming to Broadway this season, things like Be More Chill, which is known for having this mass appeal to a young audience, but then you start to see things like The Share Show and um, the, the, uh, the Temptation So Ain't Too Proud uh, that Jan talked about. Where do you think, from your perspective as somebody decades younger than the rest of us, as to what the landscape of musical theater on Broadway looks like right now? Well, I mean, I think it's very interesting right now. And one thing that I had on my list to talk about is Be More Chill, because one of the producers actually went to the Hart School. So we're taking a group trip there in March to see the show and meet some of the cast, which will be cool. So I'm really looking forward to that. And then as for other things, such as the Cher show, I love Cher. Um, I don't don't know that I'm the... uh, the target age group for loving Cher, but I do. Um, I saw it in Chicago and loved it, and I'm looking forward to seeing it here. And then as far as other things on the list, I mean, I don't know. I'm excited. I think it's definitely centered around 
a younger demographic, but then I mean, we... were you even alive when the movie Pretty Woman came out? When did it come out? I, I don't know, but I'm guessing the answer is no. No. Yeah. I was born eight years later. However, um, hey. That's sad. <laughs> no, but, but I think it's good. I think it's good to bring, to have a diverse group of musicals, so. Yeah. yeah. Well, and speaking of diverse shows, and Jan, I wanted to ask you this, because mm-hmm. you, on your Broadway radio show, you talk to playwrights and librettists and stuff, yep. and... Michael Riedel on Thursday night reported that what the Constitution means to me is going to be coming to Broadway, which I, I think for once we can actually believe him. Um, and so what that means is that's, that will be the third play of the 2018-2019 season written by a female playwright, which you look at it in all the new plays, you're like, that's not that many, but it's tied for the most shows in a season of the last 15 years by a woman. So theater talks so much about diversity and inclusion and all these things, and sometimes we see it on stage, sometimes we don't, but so often it, it seems like it's an afterthought when the shows that are working their way towards Broadway talk about diversity. It is generally um, not women, not writers of color. What do you think that is there anything that the community as a whole can do to change that? Or does it rest on the people with the money, the producers, to actually make an effort to search out things off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, in colleges and regional uh, theaters to make that move to the big, flashy Broadway commercial space? That's a big question. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) You're a uh, smart person. That's why I asked you. um, I think the most exciting playwrights right now are women playwrights and playwrights of color. And I'm going to say queer playwrights. And that might surprise people in some ways because we have a history of having uh, gay playwrights, but not gay playwrights who are dealing straight on with the gay experience. And so there's a lot of excitement out there, and I think what's happening is that people are going to see these shows off-Broadway, and the excitement surrounding them is such that producers are saying, well, hey, maybe I, I should put my money there. The show that really surprised me the most is what the Constitution means to me, um, because people who I know who don't go to theater, who are young people, um, were coming uh, uh, to me at school where I teach and saying, I know you go to the theater a lot. Have you seen that show, What the Constitution Means to Me? And that was just really strange to me that there was just this groundswell. And if I were a producer and I you know, was at my Thanksgiving dinner or something and people were coming up to me and saying, have you seen that show, What the Constitution Means to Me? I'd put my money there. Yeah. Um, so I think what it takes, the nonprofit theaters are scheduling these shows. They are producing these shows. And those of us who really love good theater just need to go out and see them, talk about them, talk to our friends about them, blog about them, and then they'll get produced. Well, that's it. What I love about what you just said is that it does put some onus on the audience. Um, you know, we often talk about in theater and in just in capitalism in general, I guess, that is that you, you vote or you communicate with your dollars. But there's more than you can do about that because there are only so many tickets to be sold off-Broadway in small houses. And for a good run, yeah, it's going to sell out, uh, even, even extend. But the more you can talk about it, the more you can ramp it up, it does have uh, an impact there. 
Um, another question that I wanted to ask uh, just about uh, everybody here is that um, talk, kind of piggybacking off what Peter said, not just in theater but in all entertainment, we are moving towards an environment where the idea of experiential things, um, uh, involvement in your entertainment is so important. And we see some things with theater kind of doing that with a, I went and saw The Jungle earlier this week where you're, it's not audience participation in that kind of situation, but it is very immersive. How do you th see things like escape rooms or all of those different types of experiential things in other parts of entertainment translating to theater? Because that to me is what is really interesting. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on the, that type of evolution? I think it has to be very careful. Um, Tony and Tina's wedding ran for years and years and years, and I think one of the reason why is that if you wanted to play along with them, they would dance and boogie with you all night long. But if you're the type of person who wants to sit in your seat and eat your ziti and not get involved, they'd leave you alone. I had a terrible experience with that bus thing called the ride um, yeah. because um, I went on they said, alright, everybody raise your hands you know, and, um, and I didn't raise my hand they said, you're not raising your hand. It became a thing. In fact, somebody else who wasn't cooperating was later accused of petering up the group because they knew my name, oh. you know, and I think that's a big mistake. Now, obviously, the ride has been successful because you still see it around town, and um, I did write and uh, put it down terribly for that type of thing, and I don't know if the uh, people are still doing what they did the day I went, but I think immersive theater is a wonderful thing because it's something you can't get at home. I think one of the reasons we have fewer movie theaters is because we have big screen TVs, and we're getting used to seeing those subtitles when we want them and stopping them when we want to so we can go to the bathroom or the kitchen, and so the movie experience has been diluted, but if you want to really have an immersive reaction to to being in an audience with people who are really paying attention. The strange thing about a play is you're sort of like a silent partner. You're in the room. You don't get to talk. You don't get to vote. But you're there. And I think that makes a difference. So I think immersive theater really is going to be something we're going to see more and more and more of. Sometimes you do get to vote because they have these shows where the sure. audience picks the ending. Yeah. And, uh, so sure, we've even got that too. Right. That's a good point. Um, I don't know, James, if you wanted to uh, ask anything, but I, I'm interested to hear from everybody as we've talked about the things you're looking forward to. Sometimes that is the same as what you think is going to win some Tony Awards. Sometimes it is not. Um, so I wonder if there's one category that anybody has really strong feelings as to what they think might win, whether it's a show, um, a performer. Obviously with performers it's a little harder because we don't necessarily know what categories everybody will be classified in. But I'll start just by saying I made, James knows I made this prediction when they announced the cast for the national run before they announced Broadway. But I, I will be surprised if Town doesn't win the Tony for Best Musical. I think, as Peter mentioned, Tootsie is probably the other show that is going to give it a, a run for its money. But I, I think the pedigree and the art, artistry of Town is probably the foregone conclusion at this time. But I'll be happy to be wrong. It happens every once in a while. Well, I don't but, see any foregone conclusions. No. Um, <clears throat> you don't either, huh? No, well, I mean... I'm trying to remember, I was looking through Playbill the other day, and by my count, there were 15 shows opening that I still haven't seen yet. And it's very exactly. hard to... Yeah. 15, that's not an insignificant no, number. No, granted, but most of them aren't musicals, but still... You know, I wouldn't count out the prom. I just... No, well, there, I, thank you, yes. You liked it, too? I Very much. Yeah, and the performers too. were wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I would have a hard time saying who's lead, who's supporting, because mm -hmm. it's such an ensemble piece. So, yeah, I could say that would give a lot of shows a run for their money. 
In fact, the mention of uh, what category people should be in brings up not a musical, but To Kill a Mockingbird, because Celia Keenan-Bolger is so wonderful in the show. And at intermission, I said to my girlfriend, you know, I think it's a leading role. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. I think it's a supporting role. And at the end of the show, I was turning to her to say, I guess it is a supporting role. And she said to me, you know, it's really a lead role. (laughs) So so who knows where they'll put her. But I'll tell you this. I think if they put her in the supporting category, she's going to win. We all expected, many of us anyway, expected that she was going to win a few years ago for The Glass Menagerie. And I was surprised when she didn't. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think that there's a sense of making it up to her, too. But good Lord, is she wonderful in To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be interested to see if the To Kill a Mockingbird or The Ferryman wins best play. Now, sure. of course, one of these others could sneak in, too. We have no idea. They might be substantially wonderful. Ink is supposedly very good. It's about Rupert Murdoch. We'll see if, what The Post thinks about it. We'll see if The, we'll see if the Post reviews it. Do we, they have a theater critic? I don't know. Anyway, so the point is that uh, there's a lot coming, but um, I want to see what happens when The Ferryman and To, to Kill a Mockingbird duke yeah. it out. And can't forget uh, Be More Chill is coming in, and sure. that could give Look, some shows. With sure. all due respect, to all these, I saw The Prom last night, and I openly wept tears streaming down my face for the last That's 15, 20 good. minutes of the show. That's pretty good. So I, I love The Prom. All right. But I, I feel like mm-hmm. we all know the, the 700, 800 voters of the Tonys, and we've seen trends over the last few years where it really is a two-horse race, even in some cases a one-horse race, for the majority of the season. Going back uh, to Hamilton, that was a lock. Dear Evan Hansen was a lock. Uh, but I don't think the band's visit was. I really oh, thought that... I think it was. Yeah, okay. Um, I felt that the road voters would be more interested in Mean Girls or even SpongeBob um, because that's an easier show to sell to their people. They, they do have name recognition. Granted, the band's visit was based on a movie, but I don't think it's a movie many people know. And um, I really thought that the those other two shows were more commercial. I still think that one well, of the reasons... Oh, the band's visit isn't doing that great no, business but, for a show. But I think that's why road voters don't need to vote for it for the Tony. Because they know Spongebob and Mean Girls is going to sell whether it has a Tony award or not. But I think if you can say the band's visit was the 20, what, 18 Tony winner for Best Musical, that might give it a little bit more street cred out in Sheboygan and Peoria and, and stuff like that. It will, but I still think they would have done better business if they could say Best Musical with, um, with the other two shows. Yeah. Let me get uh, some opinions here because we just... Um, uh, heard about the recasting of the of Ferryman with uh, a lot of American cast, and how will that impact Ferryman's Tony uh, categories? Uh, and y- you know, I, I mean, I loved the Ferryman, and then sure, I heard yeah. Brian Darcy James going, and I'm like, I'm going to love it again. Sure, I'm going to go see it again. Um, so. Uh, so, but. Then it takes it, you're seeing uh, Mockingbird's original Broadway cast versus Ferryman, and did the Tony voters all get in, and will they remember it uh, to see the original cast? Will they come back right. and see this replacement cast? Sure. And uh, You know, Jan, do you have an opinion on that? Michael, do you have an opinion on that? Well, hopefully they won't, uh, I mean, forget, if that's what you're saying. I know what you mean. And, and on that note, I hope that, um, that people don't forget the boys in the band. Because that was at the very, very the first show of the new season. Beginning yeah. of, and and uh, so I hope they do well in the Tony noms. They won't do anything in the Drama Desk noms because the Drama Desk voters weren't invited. But Tony voters were. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if people go back that far for a nomination. I can barely show. remember last week. I know, exactly. <laughs> 
I'm just biased in Jan, behalf of the ferryman. Can think, you uh, pull your microphone closer to you? Oh, sure. I Thanks. think the ferryman is just um, a classic. Yeah. I think it's it's a masterpiece. It's, um, you know, think of your favorite great word. That's what I think um, the show is. Um, I don't know that it will matter that the, the, the cast is gone because I really do think it's the work. Uh, it's just an incredible piece of playwriting, an incredible uh, theatrical experience. And so, um, and besides, you know, the rabbits and the goose will still be. <laughs> and the babies. And, uh, and, and the, the babies. babies. It's going to be a nightmare for me because I had an organization called the Theater World Awards, which uh, gives out prizes to people making debuts. And oh, so many oh, people, no. ferrymen, have made debuts. Oh. But the problem is they're all going to be back in, uh, in Europe, and uh, we're going to have accepting the award for, accepting the award for, accepting <laughs> the award for. So I'm a little discouraged about that. Um, uh, but, you know... We're going to have to give them out because they were awfully good, weren't they? Mm-hmm. And there are some really amazing people in that replacement cast, Brian sure. Darcy yeah. James. And I'm, I'm so glad that Colin Kelly Sordale is coming yeah. back because, you know, yes. he was so World Award winner. amazing <laughs> in The Last Ship, which, of course, unfortunately wasn't with us very long. Mm. But that'll be great. And then all those other wonderful and, people. Emily Burgle, Shuler yeah. yeah. Hensley, uh, Jack DeFalco. It's a really, really killer uh, replacement cast. Schuler always plays killers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> was there an official announcement? I don't think I read yeah, it about it was, why, uh, the, uh, why the original cast had to leave so early. Well, uh, I don't think they said why. Did they? I would, I would assume it had to do with uh, equity rules for, play, or from, yeah. for actors out of the... Uh, I, coming it, from... It, it seems sooner UK. than usual to it, me. Yeah, it just... <laughs> but when maybe, did it open? It opened I, in, like, November or something? Six months. I think there was a, a full six months. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, so. it also consider their rehearsal process and, and the right. cost of boarding everybody, you know, housing everybody here uh, in New York. That's a huge... Uh, now we're getting down to brass tacks. See, it always comes back to the money. Back to the... Follow the money. Yep. Talking about this real quick, and it makes me... This conversation of the ferryman makes me think of Reba McIntyre because... Jan's given me the side eye over here. Um, You've never heard Reba's Irish accent? I mean, come on. Yeah, no. But if you go back to when Reba replaced... In Annie Get Your Gun, there was this talk of maybe the idea of having a replacement Tony. Mm-hmm. You talk about Brian Darcy James taking over uh, the role in The Ferryman. That's something that is probably going to be worthy of a Tony that he's not going to be eligible for. So whether it's a replacement Tony or we've ha- heard talk of equity discussing so- ensemble and chorus Tonys, do you think that uh, – I'd like to hear a point from everybody – are there Tony Awards that you would like to see added to the mix? Maybe doing a, a differentiation between best play and best production of a play uh, mm-hmm. to talk about you know the big spectacle of Harry Potter versus the actual script that was written. Is there any mix-up that you guys would like to see? Michael, they, you look like you're ready to chomp at they, that bit. They, of course, tried to do uh, a replacement Tony briefly, and it, it didn't work logistically. I think uh, what they should focus on is doing it as a non-competitive award. Mm, like, like a special I, I, Tony. I just think that would make things a lot easier. Because yeah. part of the problem is that there aren't enough in any one season, and then they have to try to you know, find enough yeah. and, and well, there aren't. And give out 1,400 seats. Yeah. Right. Here's, a, he, he, here's a thought, is that uh, 
if they did have a replacement Tony, it would make it much easier for a producer to bring a star in yeah. to take over yes. a role. Oh, yeah. Sure it would. Um, you know, if, it, if it, a star is not... You know, we talked um, about, uh, to us, she's a star, Laura Benanti, taking over My Fair Lady. Uh, and the thought that, oh, she's never going to do it because she can't be eligible, but she did it anywhere at Lincoln Center, and I encourage everybody to go see it. Um, but if you had a replacement Tony, I think it would make the the playing field for recruiting stars to go into a long-running show. Uh, you know, you might have uh, 14 stars eligible for Waitress Alone in Al Broker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in Chicago, so many. Um, the category that I'm mystified has never happened since Hollywood has it is Best Song. I mean, mm. this is a musical-driven um, Award really, there are more musical awards, needless to say, than there are play awards. And for that matter, I mean, Hollywood doesn't really concentrate on musicals, and so Broadway really does. So why wasn't there a best song when the award was started? I'm very surprised that didn't happen. And Lord knows, back in those days, it would have been very easy to pick a best song. It still would be today. It still could be done. But nevertheless, way back when, when uh, Broadway and the Hit Parade were uh, one and the same almost, um, it would have been the time to do it. So Oh, I'm sorry that that award doesn't exist. Don't you think it would be the same person who got the score? No, I don't. You don't. It might not, not have, but I, I, I think maybe one of the problems Probably. might be that uh, just sheer number of songs. But Hollywood does it. Yeah, but but it's a little different because, as you say, there aren't as many musicals, so there aren't... But you don't have to be a musical to be a uh, best song. You can right. have a song at the credits. You yes. can have a song within no, the... No, absolutely. You know, so... But also, I mean, there's only, what, one or two songs per film that are eligible. Right. that's what I meant. Uh, it has to be original written for that movie. Sure. So it cannot have been, you know, an adaptation of. Mm-hmm. So there's a much smaller playing field in terms of film. There may very well be, but also I dare say that there are plenty of scores for which many of the songs would not come to mind as best song. True. <laughs> Fair enough. You know, My- I mean, do you think when Two by Two was running that people said, oh, we've got to nominate, you've got to have a rudder on the arc? I mean, I don't think so. So as a result, you know, there are certain things that really pop out as best songs. My category would be uh, video projections. Mm. Um, oh, yes. I think yeah. they've become such a dominant sure uh, uh, factor in, uh, in shows. And it would get some recognition for the um, much beleaguered King Kong. That was, that's exactly what I was thinking. Give oh, it to King were, Kong now. That was that was terrific. Yeah, and I would have voted for Anastasia in the second. Anastasia, Anastasia made me feel like I don't care if I ever see realistic scenery again. Those productions were so magnificent. So if that's the wave of the future, I'm with it. And like you, Matt, I agree on uh, best production versus best yes. overall to differentiate between the everything that goes into producing story rather than both musical and play uh, to differentiate with everything that needs to be involved in producing uh, a show versus writing, crafting, editing... And those are very different skills. And they have it on the musical side. I mean, they have best musical, and then they have best, you know, book and best score. So it it makes sense. There was a time. I mean, Neil Simon, everybody said, oh, Neil Simon never won a Tony Award. He actually did back in 1965. For The Odd Couple, there was a category called Best Playwright. Yeah. You know, well, it wasn't the best play that year, according to the voters. The subject was Roses was. The fact remains that uh, Neil Simon did get a Tony Award reasonably early in his career. So, um, So maybe that award should be reinstated. I agree. They, and they've had some weird ones too. In fact, they've had what they had best producer uh, Tony Awards at one point, and so, some really random things. But I feel like there's some 
There's some fluidity there. I think we can sure. mount a campaign. Hashtag campaign. Best podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I wanted to also take this opportunity to, you know, get direct feedback from folks who are here uh, listening to us. So uh, we talked about people having uh, a Q&A session, but I don't know if anybody's got questions of uh, things that we haven't covered up here. Anybody want to raise their hand? If not, we'll go on to... Yeah, oh, this one. Um, just, there have been so many revivals the last year, if you've a useful one play. Um, could be a can of worms, but <laughs> when you're looking at revivals, are you more interested in uh, being closer to the original, or are you more interested in sexy Oklahoma, where they're pushing... <laughs> Thank you for using the correct terminology. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, you know, whether it's uh, Bartlettshire doing King and I very much classically, or Bartlettshire doing Fiddler not so classically, and just general thoughts on that. Well, I guess, as the oldest one here, I'm the one who's seen most of the original productions that are being revived now. And <clears throat> under those circumstances, I always look forward to revivals to see if somebody can come up with an idea that I've never seen before or thought of before. It's, it's great fun when that happens. What's immediately coming to mind, and I, this isn't the best example, but I'm going to use it anyway because it's what's coming to mind. In Little Me, <clears throat> there's a song called On the Other Side of the Tracks. And Carolyn Lee wrote the lyric um, that the girl wants to be on the other side of the tracks with the butler buttles the tea, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the London revival, the, the actress singing says, where the butler buttles the tea. And that was so interesting to me because suddenly this word that was not really a word, she was acting like, I don't know the word. Is that what they call it when you serve tea? And I thought that was really interesting. So whenever I go to revival, I'm looking for different things. I want them to be different. I want them to be better different. I don't want them to be worse different. They often are. But nevertheless, I go in with the mind saying, boy, I bet something nice can happen here. Oh, Man of La Mancha in Paris. I'll never forget this too. When Don Quixote is leaving, he's so... uh, I'm sorry, when Cervantes is leaving, he's so excited about getting out of prison, they had him forget the book, uh, Don Quixote, and Atande! And he turned around, and they threw him the book, and he caught the book, and you watched Don Quixote get out of prison. That was terrific. Mm. So, so yes, I go with an open mind and uh, often find things that are really terrific. I don't want just replications. Though, I have to admit with Dolly, which was pretty much a replication, uh, it was nice to have it back where it belonged in the way that it was. So if it's done super well as the original, I'll take that too. I think that um, it's, they're more controversial when there are lots of cuts. I know people, a lot of people who are really incensed by all of the cuts in Carousel because uh, that moves it into a whole different category. And, uh, you know, individual shows, we all have our individual opinions. I, I despised what Bartlett Cher did to Fiddler on the Roof, but I loved some of the stuff in The King and I. I thought what he did at the end um, with the yeah. uh, the role of Lady Chiang, uh, played by Ruthie Miles, and the way her relationship with the, the young prince coming up and the way he walked over to her at the end and lifted her up when she, you know, from the floor where she was groveling, I thought that that was, uh, that was just heart-stopping. So, you know, I, I, uh, we're, we're all going to obviously have individual moments that we'll love or or hate or feel 
uh, ambivalent about, but every case is different, I think. James Lapine took a lot of heat for his revival of Annie, <clears throat> and yet there was a moment I thought was terrific, because think about it. At the end of the show, they open the box and Sandy jumps out. Now, wait a minute. Daddy Warbucks didn't know anything about Sandy, right? I mean, they, <laughs> but in this version, he had Grace Farrell see Sandy early on, and as a result, she knew that uh, Annie and Sandy had that relationship. So I thought that was really a clever idea. I'm waiting for the next Annie revival where Annie wakes up back in the orphanage you at saw- the end, talking about. Yeah, did you see that production? You know, that happened, but it, no, no, it's happened. But I want to see that on Broadway where you're talking about a restaging versus a reinvention. You could do both with that one. Do it just a traditional Annie, and then at the end, oh, it was a dream. That's sad. Yes, that happened to Trinity in Providence. Was so sad? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I would have liked to have been there that night to, to be surprised by that. But frankly, um, I have a, a, a feeling about um, shows. When, whenever a show becomes overexposed and people automatically hate it because it's become overexposed, I don't feel that way. You know, the Beach Boys taught us be true to your school just like you would to your girl. Be true to your show just like you would to your school or whatever. Uh, I think it's a very important thing never to lose the feeling you had for the show when it was first out. And don't turn against it because the sound of music has been done a million times and everybody knows it. There's a part of us that really wants to be in the know that we know shows that nobody else does. When anybody else starts to know them, we lose interest in them because they've been taken away from us in a strange sort of way. Uh Uh-uh. If they're good shows, they're good shows. Be loyal. Michael, um, you're coming up with a West Side Story film. Uh, so I hear. So, <laughs> so you I hear. hear. Yeah. Uh, if they reinvent that, are we going to have to put you on tranquilizers? Or? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I actually saw, uh, I have a friend who auditioned for it, and he got some of the script. Oh. Uh, and, and I yeah. saw his audition with these new lines by Tony Kushner. Now, I don't know if they're going to still be in there, but mm-hmm. we'll see. I mean, I, I'm sight unseen. I, I'm very trepidatious about the news that um, Rita Moreno is going to be playing a female version of the character of Doc and I don't know how that's going to work it would have to to me it would have to be completely reconceived uh, because the whole point is that she wouldn't have a relationship with the Jets. No. You know, yeah. So maybe she's going to sort of only have a relationship well, with the with the. Maybe Puerto those Rico. boys need a mother. You know. Yeah. Maybe that's but, what's wrong with the. With the but when like racism the is the central theme, the <laughs> idea that they they hate the sharks. Yeah. But they're cool with uh, I forget what they're renaming Doc, but they're cool with Rita Moreno. But they hate. Well, I mean, the Rita, Rita, Rita well, Moreno. I mean, everyone so, loves I mean, Rita Moreno, yeah. obviously, yeah. but. <laughs> Uh, I, I do think that throws in a new dynamic into the story, and I do, honestly don't know how well that will work. And also, if Cheetah's not in it also, I'm not going to see it. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, that's what I expected. So she can we, still play uh, Cheetah. Uh, uh, going along the lines of what Rob had brought up in his original question, we've seen reinventions of so many Shakespearean works. Uh, and in the more recent past, um, uh, Lord knows we've... we've we, we've seen many different interpretations or presentations of Jesus Christ Superstar, especially the live version that we just uh, mm-hmm. saw on NBC a few months back. Um, uh, I've really enjoyed... Uh, near, I, I don't think I've seen a Superstar that I really didn't like, uh, even though some of them are way, way out there <laughs> and <laughs> in space. Uh, so I, I, th- I think there's a... I think if they go to it from an artistic standpoint, I think we're we're doing 
we're doing pretty good there. And, you know, it's art. We have to take chances and, and be out there. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask everybody on the panel, and I, I, I'm going to spring this on you. I didn't, I didn't tell you about this ahead of time. Uh-huh. Is uh, what is something that you have seen that either closed early or didn't do well that... I, I've um, got this one. I'm ready. you got this. You're ready. <laughs> and Jan knows what it is, I think, because we talked about it on oh. Twitter. Um, in the fall, there was a small show over at Ars Nova called Rags Parkland Sings the Songs of the Future. Oh, yeah. It was by far the best thing I saw last year. It was... It, it was emotional. Um, it was surprising. Um, it was intellectual. It made me think the music was one of the best scores uh, that I've ever heard. And as far as I know, I, there's no plans as of now to remount it anywhere. It worked perfectly. I mean, it was designed for a space as small as Ars Nova, but I think it could be adapted to something larger. It was a brilliant show, and, and I hope that it has the opportunity to play again, not in New York, but, uh, but not only in New York, but also in places around the country, because it really is a spectacular show that I think a lot of people need to see. There are so many Ars Nova's shows yeah. that I hear about, you know, everybody's raving about it. I try to get a ticket, even, you know, with my own little money, yeah. and uh, can't get into seeing it. So I just decided, I'm subscribing yeah. to Ars Nova. Well, I'm just going to see whatever they put up, because uh, they just seem to have well, great stuff. Yeah, and Rags Parkland was... Um, was hurt by the fact that they had like a water main break or something uh, and they lost a week or so of performances um, and they couldn't reschedule them because it was up against the holidays. Um, so it even had a shorter run than it had originally intended to. They seem great. Jan, I, what, what? I would put um, on Beckett, which was at the Irish Rep. Uh, Bill Irwin did a one-man show, his tribute uh, to Samuel Beckett, that was a master class in acting. Um, Bill Irwin is one of these original kinds of artists who is an expert uh, dramatic actor and an expert uh, a comedic actor, as you know. You probably know he went to clown college, and um, he is a trained clown. And this was just 90 minutes of total magic. It was, it was incredible. That was, that's what I would Michael? look for. Uh, head over heels, uh, although I think it, not all of it worked. I thought a lot of it worked, and it was really delightful and audacious and very creative. So I'm sorry that... They didn't. Um, they weren't able to get that to a better place before it opened. I, I must have been quite difficult because I know they started out with one book writer, and then there was all kinds of unpleasantness, and someone else he he went away, and someone else came <laughs> in, and uh, so I suspect that was the the source of the problem. But I, I thought I really loved a lot of it. And I want choreography. Yeah, mm. I want to flash forward twenty years to the encore's production of Head Over Heels, <laughs> and uh, see how they fix it. Yeah, Peter. No, they'll do "Call Me Madam" instead that time. <laughs> and Carmen Cusack will still be starring. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go back a long way to tell a story that um, about La Bette. Um, I was friendly with Howard Rogan, who was the general manager of Jude Jamson, and um, he let me see La Bette early, and I was crazy for it, and so was the audience. We laughed, we laughed, we laughed. It was so amazing. 
Then <clears throat> I was doing a story on Tom McGowan, who uh, took over for Ron Silver. He's from New Jersey, and I was writing for a New Jersey newspaper. And <clears throat> again, I went, it's previews, and the audience is going crazy. We're laughing, we're laughing, we're laughing. Okay, the play opens, and it was the time I really believe Frank Rich let me down more than at any other time, <laughs> because this was such an ambitious show. I mean, it was in rhymed couplets, it, it was elegant, I mean, it, it was just so wonderful, and it needed every break it could get to succeed because it was so intelligent and lofty. And truth to tell, when I heard it was closing, I could not look at the New York Times until Thursday of the next week because I didn't want to see the ABCs without La Betton there. It meant that much to me. Okay, a couple of years passed. We're sitting around. Uh, I, I meet with a group of friends on Thursday nights and we talk about um, musicals and plays and what have you. And the subject comes up. If there could be a video of anything you would want to see, what would it be? And I said, you know, I think mine might be La Bette. And a person said, oh, I've, I've, I've got a tape of La Bette. You know, I, I, went, I always go to the theater with three friends in front of me, three in back, two next to me, and I tape the show. I said, oh, oh, please, let me see it. <clears throat> so he made me a copy. Go home, turn off all the lights, turn on my answering machine, put in the video cassette, start watching. There's the first joke, nobody's laughing. There's the second joke, nobody's laughing. Wait a minute, I saw this material killed twice. I took out the tape, there was the date, it was the second performance, the day the reviews came out. You see, critics can give permission for people to have a good time. And uh, that's a real problem, that people were saying, well, I'm not going to laugh. I mean, this is a bad show. The critics have told me that it's not funny, that it's no good. You know, so, so I really thought that was sad. Now, some people might say, wait a minute, wait. There was a revival of Labette on Broadway. Yeah, but let me tell you, it couldn't touch with a more than a 10-foot pole what the original was. So I was very disappointed by the revival. But I'm telling you, that was a real lesson about the fact how much influence critics, at least then, had. I don't know if they do anymore. Um, earlier this year, I saw, uh, oh my gosh, The House That Will Not Stand. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. New York Theater Down Workshop. Down at New York Theater Workshop. Yeah. Limited run. It's not like it closed mm -hmm. particularly early, but it didn't extend, and unlike what the Constitution means to me, it did not transfer. Uh, I loved that play. So I thought it was brilliant, an adaptation of The House of Bernarda Alba, but bringing it to, the, uh, to America rather than Spain, and themes were consistent with the original, but it just made it a very American story. It was beautiful. I think I heard that it's uh, uh, it's uh, getting a movie. Oh, good. A, a movie adaptation. Hmm. I think I just read recently, or I'm trying to remember now if I read it was a film or a, another production. The Marcus Gardley. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Is that what's happening? Oh, how wonderful! Had my favorite line of the year because Bernada Albert is about a tough mother who really controls her kids, and the girl wants to go to the prom, and the mother says, "If Jesus shows up with a corsage, she isn't going to the prom." <laughs> It was a beautiful play, very intelligent, and I really hope more people get to see it. It was just brilliant. I'm sorry it didn't extend and didn't transfer, but I really hope good things for everyone involved in that one. It's like the Academy Awards here. We're about to get sung off. So, uh, <laughs> Natalie, what... Yeah, I'll just close it up by saying I loved The Last Ship. Um, I think Really? Yes, yes. <laughs> I, yeah, I still listen to the cast album. I thought Rachel Tucker... I thought kill myself. Really? Oh. Well, that's, that's <laughs> interesting. Um, yeah, no, I loved Rachel Tucker in it. I thought she was brilliant. So, The Last Ship. Um, 
One of my favorite shows, um, uh, and I, 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 I've had so much pushback on this. Uh, the original production of Sideshow. I don't know why, but it broke my heart and it meant so much to me. And I've never been able to put it together. And I've, I've been really lucky. I've, I was able to play Terry in a few small productions at a few different theaters. A sideshow broke my heart, and I wasn't a big fan of the revival, uh, but the original production really broke my heart. All right, so uh, let's wrap it up for today. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com, and there's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you or Apple Podcasts. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher. Uh, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcast, you can get to Broadway Radio's podcasts. And thank you all so much for coming here today. So, Peter, do we have an answer for last week's trivia? No, we don't. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we can no. drop that in later. Yeah, we're going to have to uh, do that later. But I do have a trivia question for this week. In the musical Bye Bye Birdie, there are two love stories going on. One is with the adults, Rosie and Albert. One is with the teenagers, He's in love with Kim. She's in love with him. And yet, if you listen to the original cast album, who's the only character to actually say the words, I love you? Is it one of them or is it someone else? And to whom is I love you said? All right. So uh, if you have an answer for that, raise your hand. Okay. people in the crowd. What was that? Exactly right. Exactly right. What's your name? Amy? Yes. So Did Amy you know wins this week. We, we've All got right. cookies in the back for we you. Have right. Right. Yes, we want to. You know, we have lots of cookies here, so uh, take some cookies. So on behalf of, let's see, Matt Tamanini, Jan Simpson, Michael Portantier, Peter Felicia, Jenna Tessa Fox, Natalie Nowak, I am James Reno. Thank you so much for coming to Broadway Videos This Week on Broadway. Bye bye. Who could help you to your final destination, Mr. Hermes? That's me. It's a sad song. Summertime, Persephone by name. Try.